You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 246, Mutiny of the Connecticut Line. For the last uh, few episodes, we've been looking at events in other parts of the world. We last left the Continental Army back in episode 242, where they were enduring the most brutal winter of war while encamped at Morristown, New Jersey, and were still finding opportunities to attack the British in New York City. As spring finally came in 1780, the focus on trying to survive the winter could turn to a new focus on how to begin the new fighting season. One of the bright spots for General Washington was the return of the Marquis de Lafayette. Recall that Lafayette had returned to France more than a year earlier, in early 1779. The young general had spent his time in Europe trying to encourage the king to provide more support for the Continental Army, and also trying to encourage a French invasion of England. After the invasion of England fell apart, the French ministry agreed to send an army to America. Lafayette lobbied hard to lead that army. The Minister of War, however, did not think the 21-year-old officer was ready for such a command. Although Lafayette was a major general in the Continental Army, he had left France three years earlier as a captain who was not even on active duty. Now, his success in America had permitted him to purchase a colonelcy in the King's Dragoons at the cost of 80,000 livres. This also put him back on the active list for the French army. Even so, the young colonel's youth and inexperience was not sufficient for France to entrust him with the command of a 6,000-man army. Instead, that honor went to General Jean-Baptiste Donatien de Vermeer, better known as the Comte de Rochambeau. Now, I'll get into more details about Rochambeau in a future episode, but the man had been a general in the French army since before Lafayette was born. Rather than making Lafayette an aide to Rochambeau, the ministry directed Lafayette to return to the Continental Army. There, he could be of service by helping coordinate actions between the Continental and French armies. Lafayette was a bit disappointed over not receiving command of this French army, although even he must have seen that as a reach. Instead, he requested that it be made public that he had requested to return to America to rejoin the Continentals. It would seem more honorable if it was his idea. Lafayette once again put on his Continental uniform. Unlike his last departure for America when he had to sneak out of the country against the wishes of the king, this time he visited Versailles and received the king's best wishes with his mission. The king even gave him a personal note to deliver to General Washington, informing General Washington that the French army would be arriving soon on American shores. 
Also, the last time Lafayette left Europe, his wife Adrienne was pregnant with her first child. By the time of this second departure, Lafayette managed to stick around long enough to see the birth of his second child, whom he named George Washington de Lafayette. Lafayette departed months ahead of the larger French army, with only a few companions aboard the French frigate the Herbione. The voyage got off to a bad start when strong headwinds broke the mainmast and the ship had to return to port for repairs, with three English cutters actually chasing after her. About a week later, with the repairs effected and the ocean free of any visible enemy vessels, the Hermione departed once again. This time, the voyage enjoyed fair winds, a smooth ocean, and did not come into contact with any British ships. Only one crew member died of fever, so a pretty good trip by the standards of the day. Six weeks later, at the end of April, Lafayette arrived in Boston. Again, his reception was very different from his first arrival in America. Three years earlier, he had been shunned and ignored by most Americans, including members of Congress, as an unwanted adventurer. Upon his return, he was the toast of Boston. Congressman Samuel Adams and Governor John Hancock held banquets in his honor. The city celebrated his arrival with fireworks and parades. Even the Congress in Philadelphia passed a resolution celebrating his return. After several days in Boston, Lafayette departed on May 2nd, insisting on getting to General Washington without further delay. Much of the city gathered to celebrate the French hero and escort him out of the city. It took Lafayette more than a week to travel from Boston to the Continental Camp at Morristown, New Jersey. Despite clamorous Americans, poor roads, and roving bands of loyalists looking to intercept him, he managed to make the 250-mile ride in about a week, arriving on May 10th. Washington was overjoyed with Lafayette's return. Lafayette brought Washington the good news that an army of 6,000 French soldiers and six ships of the line were following behind him. The King of France had ordered the French army to serve as auxiliaries under General Washington's direct command. The Continental Army's leaders spent the next few days making plans on how to use these new reinforcements. The Americans were not sure exactly where the French fleet would arrive and had to send officers to all major ports in order to ensure a proper welcome. They also had the very difficult task of trying to find the necessary food and supplies to feed and house these new French soldiers. Washington, of course, wanted to attack New York City. He had been eager to return there ever since the British pushed him out in 1776. Now, with the bulk of the British army down in Charleston, and with the addition of the French army, and importantly the French navy, the chances of recapturing the city had never been better. At the same time, the Americans hoped to have some element of surprise. The British would be well aware that a French army was headed to America, but could only guess at their first target. In order to throw them off the obvious target of New York, the Continentals let it be known that the French army would be used to capture Quebec. This was never a real goal. It was only used as disinformation for the enemy. And despite Lafayette's good news, the Continentals had some very severe struggles to contend with. 
Congress had promised France that the Continental Army would have 25,000 soldiers available for a spring campaign. Of the 12,000 or so soldiers that went into winter quarters at Morristown, deaths and desertions had taken their toll. The army had only about 8,000 men by spring, and of those, only between five and 6,000 were fit for duty. The men were in miserable condition. They had been on an estimated one-eighth rations of food over the winter, often going for days at a time with nothing at all to eat. General Washington had ordered a punishment of a minimum of 100 lashes for anyone who left camp looking for food. The lack of adequate clothing led many men to freeze to death. Soldiers did not even receive the paper money they were promised, even though the money was pretty much worthless anyway. In all, living in Morristown was an absolutely miserable experience. Despite the conditions, the majority of soldiers actually stuck it out. Even so, few new recruits were eager to join an army that treated its soldiers so poorly. Recruiting for the spring campaign proved almost impossible. Even states that attempted to draft recruits were coming up short. Congress had sent a commission to Morristown to curtail the, quote, waste, fraud, and abuse that must have been the cause of the Army's problems, but found it could do nothing. The committee had tried to meet with Nathaniel Green, the Army's quartermaster general. Green had taken on the job of quartermaster two years earlier at Valley Forge. He didn't want the job then, and only took it at the pleading of George Washington, who needed someone loyal and capable to take over at the height of the Conway Cabal. Green did his duty, but continually complained that he wanted to be a line officer and return to a field command. When the Congressional Committee came to Morristown, the Quartermaster Department was a primary focus of their attention. The committee seemed to think that the problem feeding the Army was not that farmers were doing everything possible to avoid accepting worthless paper continental dollars at face value for their food, but rather that the Quartermaster Corps had too many men on the payroll and that they were probably corrupt. The department was spending over $400,000 per month and had hired more than 3,000 men to supply the Army with its necessities. Congress believed that they could find some fat to cut there. Although Congress had cleared Green of any impropriety in several prior investigations, delegates figured that some of his underlings were up to no good. General Green refused even to meet with the committee at Morristown unless they were willing to address the larger problems that existed. He was not going to participate in some pointless attempt to look for corruption within his department if the committee was unwilling to look at the actual problem of farmers wanting real compensation for the food they provided. A few months later, based on the committee's investigation, Congress ended up reforming the Quartermaster Corps and cutting the jobs of most of the purchasing agents. This caused General Green to fire off a resignation letter comparing Congress to officials in London. Although Green only intended to resign as Quartermaster General and return to duty as a Continental Line Officer, Congress found his letter so disrespectful that they considered removing him from the Army entirely. It was only the efforts of General Washington that Congress was dissuaded from this course of action. Meanwhile, the soldiers continued to die from cold, hunger, and disease under terrible conditions. Even in the spring, when it got a little warmer, the deaths continued. 
In April, before Lafayette's arrival, French minister Luzerne and the unofficial Spanish minister, Don Juan de Morales, came to Morristown to consult with Washington and to see conditions for themselves. General von Steuben tried to put together a military parade in their honor, but had trouble assembling even four regiments who were decently uniform and who had enough men capable of marching to turn out for the review. To top that off, Spanish Minister Morales came down with pneumonia. After ten days of care at Morristown, he died. After his burial in a lavish ceremony, the army had to post a guard over his grave to prevent desperate soldiers from digging it up and trying to steal the clothing from the corpse. If there was one thing that General Washington, Quartermaster Green, and the Congressional Committee agreed on, it was that the army was in a truly desperate situation. Nearly everyone who had visited Morristown expressed surprise at the fact that the soldiers had put up with so much for so long and had not already mutinied. The committee reported to Congress that the situation could mean the loss of the cause. Quote, Their starving condition, their want of pay, and the variety of hardships that they have been driven to sustain has soured their tempers and produced a spirit of discontent which begins to display itself under a complexion of the most alarming hue. If this spirit should fully establish itself, it must be productive of some violent convolution infinitely to our prejudice at home and abroad, as it would evince a want of means or a want of wisdom to apply them, either of which must bring our cause into discredit and draw in its train consequences of a nature too serious to be contemplated without the deepest anxiety. In other words, if the soldiers mutinied, it would make Congress look completely incompetent or incapable of waging war, and our foreign allies, particularly France, might not be interested in continuing with this mess. The suffering and deprivation was universal throughout the army. The soldiers' frustration finally exploded on the evening of May 25th. A detachment from the Continental Regiment spent the morning digging graves for 11 fellow soldiers who were scheduled to be executed the following day. This duty had no doubt put the men in a fouler mood than usual. That evening, they began wandering across the parade grounds, talking back at officers and refusing to do any orders. A frustrated officer called one of the men a mutinous dog. The man shouted to his fellow soldiers, Who will parade with me? The two Connecticut regiments fell in, shouldered arms, and just marched out of camp, presumably headed for home, or perhaps another part of the line where they could gather more mutineers. They ignored the screams of officers to halt or turn back. The officers, in desperation, grabbed one of the men who they thought had heard given a command, and they tried to make an example of him. But the officers were forced to back off when several of the man's comrades pointed their bayonets at the officers. The officers attempted a mix of threats and enticements of food to get the soldiers to stand down, but these men had had it. They had refused. Lieutenant Colonel John Sumner appeared and ordered the men to shoulder arms. The men stood silently and ignored the order as Colonel Sumner launched into a stream of invectives. Finally frustrated, he simply walked off the field. The brigade commander returned Jonathan Meigs, 
who I've mentioned several times before, he led a lot of daring raids against the British, also attempted to get these mutineers to stand down. Although he was a popular commander in the Connecticut line, he threatened to force the issue. One account says a soldier struck him. Another account says a soldier leveled a musket at him and threatened to kill him. Other officers attempted to assemble a Pennsylvania regiment to prevent the mutinous Connecticut Continental soldiers from leaving. However, after the Pennsylvanians learned of the purpose of the mission, the officer heard mutterings that perhaps they should join their comrades from Connecticut. In the end, the officers sent the Pennsylvania soldiers back to their quarters, lest they decide to join the mutiny rather than put it down. Later, one of the Pennsylvania officers went on his own to approach the mutinous Connecticut soldiers. Uh, Rather than bark orders at them, he simply asked the men what their issues were and why they had not gone to their officers. Uh, The men laughed at him because, of course, they'd gone to their officers many times in the past and got no answer. But Stewart continued, pointing out that the officers were suffering as much as the men, that the officers were hungry too. He went on to say that their conduct was only doing injury to their own characters. Quote, You Connecticut troops have won immortal honor to yourselves this winter past by our perseverance, patience, and bravery, and now you are shaking it off with your heels. This appeal to their honor had some impact on the soldiers. They had cooled off enough that they agreed to return to camp. No one was ever prosecuted over the incident, and according to one of the soldiers, Private Joseph Plum Martin, whose narrative we have to thank for the most detailed description of this incident, he noted for the next few weeks that they had no cause to complain about the amount of food that the regiment received. Washington also commuted the sentences of 10 of the 11 men who had been condemned to die the following day. Now, Washington used the incident to appeal once again to Congress for more support for the Army saying that the mutiny had, quote, given me infinitely more concern than anything that has ever happened. Washington also wrote to Pennsylvania President Joseph Reed, saying that if Pennsylvania did not provide everything the army needed, it could undertake nothing. Washington knew that French reinforcements were expected any day to meet up with an army of 25,000 Continental soldiers, who were well-disciplined and with the resources necessary to begin the campaign that would hopefully end this war. But that spring, on the eve of the arrival of the French army, Washington would have been lucky to be able to field 10,000 soldiers in the Northern Department, and even those he could not feed, clothe, and arm properly. In his letter to Pennsylvania President Reed, Washington asserted that, quote, in modern wars, the longest purse must chiefly determine the event. I fear that of the enemy will be found to be so. Though the government is deeply in debt, and of course poor, the nation is rich, and their riches afford a fund which will not easily be exhausted. In other words, battlefield victories would not decide who would win this war. It was the willingness of the people to continue paying the costs of the war longer than the other side was willing to tolerate. To Washington and most others, it appeared that the Continental government was reaching its limit. People were unwilling to supply the soldiers 
with ammunition, food, clothing, and other supplies necessary to continue the war. Washington hoped that a final push in 1780 might be enough to break the will of the British to continue pouring British money into this war. America's greatest chance would come with the arrival of the French, but only if the Continental Army could field a force as large and well-supplied as it had in previous years. And that was looking increasingly unlikely. Absent a great victory, Washington's unspoken fear seemed to be that the American people had grown weary of the sacrifice and that they might be willing to return to colonial status just to end this ongoing conflict. Once again, Washington could only vent his frustration that he would not have the resources he needed to deliver a crushing blow at the right time. And next week, we head to Charleston, where the British will deliver a crushing blow of their own against the Continental Army's Southern Department. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam and Michael Mulhern, who upgraded from Privy Council to Robert Morris Circle last month. I also want to welcome Douglas Sacchini, who joined as a standard bearer last month, and to Larry Seltzer, Blake Flanagan, George Hines, and Andrew Malone, who all joined as Minutemen. I also appreciate one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo from Alan Scott, Arthur Crimmins, and Kate Johnson. I wanted to mention that I had a great time at the American Revolution Authors Conference in Quakertown a couple of weeks ago. The folks who put together that event are looking to schedule another conference in the fall, if anyone has any good ideas for a location for that event, let me know. Also, in June, I'm planning to go to the American Revolution Congress in the Mohawk Valley in New York, up in Johnstown. If anyone is going there for the weekend, it would be a great time to catch up. I'm also planning to go to History Camp Boston in August, where I'm putting together a panel on using new media to teach history. Hope to see some of you there. Now, this week, we looked at the Continental Army in the spring of 1780. They were emerging from the worst winter of the war. The lack of food and supplies were really taking a toll. Now, when we look at these events from our modern perspective, I think it's shocking to see how little support the country gave its soldiers. 
we're used to a world where we spend a great deal of money to make sure our armed forces have everything they need. We sometimes forget, I guess, how much poorer the world was before the Industrial Revolution. The reason armies around the world at this time remained so small was that there was simply not enough excess wealth to produce the necessities for a larger army. The reason over 90% of the people were farmers at that time was that it took that many people to produce enough food for everyone. If you took 20 or 30% of the population for an army, there would not be enough farmers left to feed that army. Wars had to be fought by spending money so that outsiders would be willing to provide the food and supplies necessary to sustain the war. When Washington said in one of the letters I quoted today that the longest purse would prevail, he meant that it was money and credit that would keep the war going. Clearly, Britain had more of that. So Americans had to sacrifice even harder to keep their resources going. You might think people are fighting for their lives. Why wouldn't they sacrifice more? The reality, though, is that when people had suffered so much for so many years, they began to think, well, maybe living under the old colonial government wasn't so bad. This misery that we're experiencing right now might never end, and paying a few extra taxes pale in comparison to the suffering that the war has brought on us. That is how tyrannical governments prevail. It's not that people like living under tyrants. It's that people believe it's their best option compared to the misery that they would experience otherwise. Now, in this case, Congress could not get the states to meet their requisitions. States could not get the people to give up more of their food, labor, and soldiers through taxes or recruitment. Everyone knew that more was needed, but expected others to step up and meet that need. And again, that's why tyranny sometimes prevails. That is why people gave into the allure that monarchy could be the only effective form of government. There needed to be a strong leader who could impose these sacrifices that were needed to prevail. The patriots, the Whigs, were challenging that idea. The people would sacrifice voluntarily for an ideal rather than submit to a tyrant. It was in these final years of the war that they would really put that idea to the test. It's where so many other revolutions gave in to a dictator who could bring the necessary order to the chaos. It really, in my opinion, was only Washington's refusal to step into that role that prevented it from happening in America. The Continental Army was at a breaking point. The soldiers' suffering had become unbearable, even for the most patriotic of men. It's easy for them to feel like they were giving all they could for a people who would not even pay to feed them. In a sense, I guess it's hard to understand why there was not more mutiny and desertions. It really is a testament to the soldiers that they endured these sufferings and continued on in the belief that their sacrifices would eventually bring benefit, if not to themselves, but to their families and children. We will see additional mutinies in future episodes. It really became a dark part of the war as you see men being punished and executed because they just cannot take the continued suffering and sacrifice. One of the things that gave Americans hope that this suffering would not last forever was the French alliance. The return of Lafayette and the promise of an army did restore some hope. 
the Continentals were never able to capture New York because it was surrounded by water controlled by the British Navy. If the French Navy could capture those waters, the Continentals might have a chance of retaking New York City. That certainly was Washington's hope, and we'll see how that unfolds in future episodes. But the Franco-American relationship was personified in the bond that formed between Washington and Lafayette. The whole reason that the Continentals had entrusted such a young and inexperienced officer with such an important command within the Continental Army was because they thought it would help cement the French alliance. That was a gamble, and it did pay off. It's hard to underestimate the role that Lafayette played in bringing about French assistance. He had worked closely with Benjamin Franklin to lobby Versailles for support during the time he was back in Europe. If Lafayette and Washington had not formed such a close bond, that support might never have come. That brings me to this week's book recommendation. Adopted Son, Washington, Lafayette, and the Friendship that Saved the Revolution by David Clary. This 2007 book takes a close look at the relationship the two men built during the American Revolution and afterwards. The author, Clary, has written a number of books and was also the chief historian for the U.S. Forest Service. Some have criticized this book for focusing too much on the quasi-father-son relationship between Washington and Lafayette. The two men did refer to each other in that way, but I don't think it detracts from the important international and political importance of that relationship. In any event, if you want to read more about it, pick up a copy of Adopted Son. My online recommendation is an article in the Revolutionary War Journal called Hatter to Hero, American Revolution Colonel Jonathan Miggs Incredible Story by Harry Shenowolf. I only mentioned Miggs in passing in this episode about his efforts to stop the Connecticut mutiny, but his contribution to the war overall is an interesting one and one that is overlooked. So, if you get a chance, check out the Revolutionary War Journal article. Links, as always, are on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, In the American Revolution, the Patriot cause was supported by France, Spain, and the Netherlands. Why is France's contribution remembered celebrated so much more than the Spanish and Dutch? Well, Neither Spain nor the Netherlands entered into any sort of alliance with the U.S. during the Revolutionary War. Only France did so. Neither Spain nor the Netherlands ever sent any ships or soldiers to fight alongside the Americans, as France did. Spain and Dutch officers did not volunteer to join the Continental Army, as many French officers did. As we'll see in these final years of the war, French involvement became much more direct and critical to the ultimate success. Spain and the Netherlands certainly indirectly benefited the American cause, but they never sent those armies to fight alongside the Continentals, so there really was never that tight bond like there was with France. Spain and the Netherlands remained neutral. They did provide some financial assistance, and as I said, their fighting with the British indirectly benefited the American cause, but neither country went so far as France to fight for American independence. That is why Americans look to France as their first ally. 
If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or Facebook, Twitter, or Quora. I will try to answer your questions. Well, that's all for this week. Please join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.